The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor for the magazine. In this episode, you'll hear from Maggie Coleman, Managing Partner with BFIN, where she leads the Private Capital Authority real estate platform. She recently spoke with Chad Gleason, CCIM Managing Director with Pentaveret Global Investments at the 2020 CCIM Global Conference. In the first of a special two-part series of podcasts, she discusses cross-border investment among global regions and across asset classes. You'll hear the audio recording of their fireside chat at the conference. What a year. Quite a year, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's been new things all the time. It never seems to slow down. You know, with that being said, before we get into some really good questions here, obviously, top of mind, we're a week away from the elections uh, just passed. Um, You know, from talking from an investor standpoint, obviously, you're talking to a lot of global people. Uh, how do you feel about this election being passed? And in, if you're looking at with the rear view mirror behind you, your crystal ball ahead of you, um, how does it look from an investor that their elections are over? You know, I think every election cycle, as we move towards and kind of creep up on election day, you see investors and sellers really start to slow things down a bit. Um given the uncertainty around uh, what happens on election day. So it felt particularly acute this year, but I think we see it every election cycle. Um, And I think that there's certainly, given all of the other factors that we've um, been contending with in 2020, um, a certain sense that, you know, the election is done and, and we can check that box. And now there is line of sight to, um, you know, what uh, the U.S. landscape will look like uh, going forward. So um, I think for most investors and for most, um, you know, um, real estate investors and, and, and owners, it's, it's again, it's kind of like that box is checked. And now at least one layer of uncertainty has been um, has been removed. So with regards to capital flows, how does this affect capital flows into the U.S.? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is there still trepidation? You know, capital flows uh, from offshore investors have been relatively consistent into the U.S. market. And, you know, in spite of, you know, what we saw here domestically is a lot of chatter around um, the election season. You know, when you think about the long term perspective of many global investors, the U.S. still remains um, to be very transparent. So historically, and I would, um, you know, probably venture to say that going forward, you're still going to see global capital continue to um, look to the U.S. Um, we've seen it on a trajectory of not only increasing in total transaction volume, but also diversifying and diversifying across sectors, diversifying across markets. And I think that that trend is going to continue as more and more investors, which we'll talk about, increase allocation to real estate and real assets as a sector. The U.S. is largely deemed, you know, a safe haven for many investors for their private capital. And even during the COVID period when we were, you know, really enveloped in the uncertainty, and and you have to remember the COVID experience was something experienced globally. So even though it's ebbed and flowed in regions, 
We've seen capital continue to try and effectuate transactions here in the U.S. So even with the you know challenge of logistics and travel, we saw offshore investors looking for opportunities here in the U.S. As we go, Maggie, into this conversation, I, I wanted to define a few things just for everyone uh, listening in with us uh, so they can kind of get some basis for the conversation. Global capital investment dollars are are seeking real estate, commercial real estate investments around the world. We're not unique to this in the, in the U.S., but, you know, a couple of neat stats is that the U.S. also is 24% share of the global economy. So it's a one-fourth of the global economy. There's a lot of eyes coming in. And doing the research for this, I also didn't realize that we've also been the largest economy since 1871, which is, again, another highlight for uh, for the size and volume of what the U.S. is. What are a few key elements that make the U.S. real estate offering so attractive to these global investors? Well, it's a lot of what you just described. I think the investors from abroad, whether those are, um, you know, fiduciaries for pensions from employees all over the world, or as I mentioned, some of the high net worth capital, we'll talk a bit more about those pools of, of capital, I think that they see the U.S. as really a deeply stable place for investment. There is a sense that your capital will be preserved here, even with the you know, ebbs and flows of the market and, and the, the, the volatility that we see. There is a sense the U.S. remains a place for, for you to preserve your capital and to really be able to um, harness some sort of, of return. When you look across many of the countries and regions which invest in the U.S. real estate market, they're comparing putting their capital into domestic savings that may be negative or very low savings rates. You know, the fixed income market has not trended as high as real estate. So there's a natural um, inclination to put the capital where they can achieve yield. And there is still yield here in the U.S. market, even with our historically low interest rates. I think the other perspective around the U.S. market is that there is, you know, depth and breadth to markets with very strong fundamentals. So we talk about the number of markets within the U.S. Obviously, the gateways are, and when we say gateway, we mean New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. You know, those are markets that everyone abroad knows and has heard of, but there are 50 plus markets in the U.S. where capital you know, has um, targeted and are pretty strong metro areas for for placing capital into real estate. So it really creates a lot of variety for investors um, who are looking for different profiles um, and in particular different risk profiles. And then I think a huge factor is there's, it's a liquid market. So there's liquidity. So you, again, part of that capital preservation are pretty, um, you're pretty sure that, you know, you can get your capital out and it's a very liquid market. So all of those factors really are what investors look at when they're comparing markets across the globe to to place their capital. And I think as we see more and more transparency move into other markets, certainly they become competitive to the U.S. But I think right now the U.S. still is really the place where offshore investors see as, as the, you know, first stop for offshore investing. You know, you mentioned investors as as a general term and I'd like to be able to get in there. From a high from a high level, what do you see maybe in three categories or who are these investors? 
I think if we were to start, you know, at the large scale investors that we encounter, it would be, you know, starting with the sovereign wealth funds. And many people hear about sovereign wealth fund capital and hear about them making big plays in, in real estate. And, you know, sovereign wealth funds are the, the state-owned investment funds that invest not only in real asset, but financial assets, stocks, bonds, et cetera. And we see that capital as largely passive, meaning that they're not sending over teams to, you know, operate these real estate investments, but they really want to be passive investors. And they look broadly at where they think, not only from a capital perspective, but also, you know, in some instances, politically, where they should be placing their capital. So um, sovereign wealth funds have been very active in the U.S. market. Um, I think the next, you know, category, big category that we talk about when we talk about foreign investors are foreign pension funds. Those can be pension funds uh, from Canada, who is actually our largest offshore investor. And pension funds, just as they are here in the U.S., are the fiduciaries of employee retirement. I think what is interesting and from a U.S. perspective, you know, many of the um, countries with the largest pensions have employees that have, you know, forced retirement. So these pension funds have billions and billions of, of dollars that, you know, they are the fiduciaries behind and are tasked with growing for the growing populations. So they are uh, a tremendous source of capital for real assets, um, infrastructure and real estate. And they are increasingly active and continue to raise the amount that they want to place into real estate. We also see a number of foreign private equity funds who are active. Those tend to be looking for higher returns and are you know, very nimble, very similar in, in, in uh, look and feel to the large you know, global private equities that are based here in the U.S., whether it's Blackstone and Aries and, and the others. Um, and then two other categories we work with very often, um, which will be, you know, maybe, which would be of interest to the audience here are developers. There are developers, very large developers, um, particularly in Asia, that want to replicate their development business here in the U.S. And so many times they have capital that they want to invest alongside of U.S. developers and really learn how to build vertically integrated developer um, development businesses here in the U.S. Um, that can range from office to industrial to other sectors. And then that sector that you talked about, the elusive high net worth capital, which is, you know, we think going to be one of the biggest growing sources of offshore capital um, as more and more people put their private wealth into real estate. And that can be a family office coming, you know, into the U.S. saying we're looking for a, you know, single tenant, in, you know, um, investment grade retail asset, or it can be someone uh, looking for an office asset. It can also be that capital is also represented by syndicators who are firms that will buy an asset and then syndicate to multiple families who will put in, you know, a small amount of capital and be partial owners. So without diving into COVID, which is obviously a big part of 2020, is probably the biggest part of our, our giggle at the introduction, uh, simply because it's really rocked the economy. 
2020 was still a wild year. And from a real estate perspective, you know, we, we, we're getting reports of a 70% reduction in Q2 from a, a transaction numbers across the country. With that being said, since March of 2020, which capital sources have been kind of movers who have been re-entering the market as expected? And who are the ones that are going to be coming in a little later that might be a bit more cautious? We really saw, I think, at the outset of COVID, a couple of interesting uh, phenomenons relative to first movers. One was really just based on what seems like obvious logistics. And that was investors who had teams already here in the U.S., given the lack of, of the, you know, um, the lack of ability to travel. So for firms that would have, you know, a team in New York or a team on the West Coast, there was a natural inclination to start to look for deals within, you know, within driving distance that their teams could get to and reasonably underwrite. The interesting thing I think we started to see as we moved into COVID kind of in the spring was a real rise of interest and in an increase in at least, you know, CA and bid activity from private capital. Again, that high net worth investor. And what was interesting about that was there were a couple of themes that emerged. One, I think, you know, there was, again, the sense that the uncertainty around COVID created some of the high net worth capital abroad, um, created a bit of, you know, uncertainty from their perspective with, with regards to their capital. And they wanted to find opportunities to place it here in the U.S. that would afford them some level of comfort around preservation. The typical, you know, high net worth family we see usually looks for, you know, offices, office assets in New York or, um, hotel assets. And obviously, you know, the hotel industry was mired in uncertainty. So we really saw private capital start to look at different sectors and look at industrial, you know, small industrial assets when they hadn't in the past. And, you know, if there were industrial assets with Amazon or FedEx or any e-commerce backed, you know, tenant over a time frame of call it 10 years plus, we saw family offices from Asia, family offices from Europe, really starting to try and acquire those assets. Because again, you've got that fixed return and a relative uh, amount of security around the e-commerce story. And they understand it and they get it here in the U.S. So private capital really you know, became activated by some of the challenges with COVID. And I think we thought that was really interesting. The other piece, which you know, I know we're talking off a lot about global capital here, but, you know, domestic capital really, uh, I think, activated as well. And the U.S. Um, buyers really saw this as an opportunity, I think, to participate in transactions where there was going to be less competition and, you know, less bid activity to really shore up pricing clarity. So there was there were transactions getting done. We saw transactions getting done across multifamily and a lot of that was driven, you know, by the fact that you have the agencies, which were still flush with capital, and that capital was, you know, uh, able to continue to provide accretive loans for multifamily purchases. So we saw a lot of multifamily activity continue throughout COVID. You know, I already mentioned the industrial sector continued to perform, and in some instances, industrial pricing on assets actually improved in COVID. There was that much um, activity. We took a small industrial asset 
out to market with a you know e-commerce back credit. And I think 70% of the CAs were from offshore investors. So it was a very real turnout there uh, in the industrial sector. And then, you know, single tenant investment grade opportunities, you know, continued to harness both domestic and foreign capital. So those were bright spots in what was, you know, a lot of headlines of headwinds that were creating uncertainty in the market. Thank you for listening to the first episode of this special two-part series with Maggie Coleman. Be sure to listen to the second part to hear Maggie's insights on foreign capital and differences in outlook among CRE sectors moving into 2021. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate.